This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Bible admonishes us to study and show ourselves approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling, dividing, uh, drilling the word of truth. We're so glad to be here for the Bible line today. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's Word. Maybe there's a passage they're struggling with in terms of its interpretation or application, or there's an issue in their life that they'd like biblical counsel on. If you fall into one of those categories, there's several ways that you can contact us. You just heard the local number, 843-EXCHANGE, and that number is 525-1859. The 877 toll-free exchange is the call letters WAGP980, or you can uh, call uh, email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, standing, of course, for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Uh, you can shoot us an email, and we'll respond. We do give priority to live callers, so if you're calling in live in this uh, beautiful day in September... Feel free to um, call us. You can dictate your question, or you can go on the air live, however you'd like to give it. All right, Rick, let's go ahead, and we'll get started this morning. All right, very good. Uh, Judy from Bluffton emailed her question. She says, I have a sister getting ready to join a Bible study. What do you know about Seamless by Angie Smith? Don't know anything about it, so I'll have to do some research on it. Never heard of her, so good question. Okay, very good. Um, A couple of questions dealing with demonic possession, so I'm going to pose them both to you, and then you can respond accordingly. An anonymous listener says, does CBC, Community Bible Church, deal with demonic oppression? My son is experiencing this. He is new to the faith, and his background in drug abuse and new age dealings opened a lot of demonic doors. He is constantly searching on the web for deliverance ministries. Any suggestions and help would be Greatly appreciated. And Mary from Aiken, South Carolina, writes, What are the differences between demonic influence or possession and mental illness or mental diseases? How can one tell the difference? Well, there's a lot of questions there, and uh, these are really good, good, important questions to deal with. Um, Let's deal first with the broad spectrum between demon possession and demon oppression. It is impossible for a true child of God, if they've been born again, to be demonically possessed. Uh, The Bible is very clear that there's freedom from demonic possession when you call upon Christ. And I might say, while we're thinking about this, in terms of being oppressed, that is attacked by the devil, maybe in a concerted way. And I say the devil, I mean the devil or one of his demons— The Bible promises, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is available to overcome any kind of demonic oppression. No demon, not even the devil himself, can prevent you as a Christian if you surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit, 
Can he prevent you from being free? The problem, more often than not, is an issue of surrender. Now, again, if if you know someone who is demon-possessed, and we're seeing more of this, unfortunately, in our nation. There was a time when it was very, very hard to find in America, though you'd go to other countries of the world, and I would be asked a lot of questions. I'd go to, say, the former Soviet Union in one of their nations, and uh, you discover that with 70 years of communism, uh, people were told there was no God, and and some uh, uh, grabbed onto that, and man by nature is spiritual because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and so they clung to other things, and of course everything that's spiritual is not spiritually good. There are powers and principalities that wage war, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. A passage that comes to mind that kind of bleeds both of these issues together is in the book of Acts on the 19th chapter. It's the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and he ministers in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a great city. I've been there before. Some of the ruins are just breathtaking that have been preserved, especially the theater where there was a near riot, and uh, it was under silt for centuries, and they unburied it in the late 1800s, and it's just like in perfect condition. It's absolutely incredible. But Paul ministered in Ephesus for three years, longer in that city than any other place. So I'm reading from Acts 19, starting in verse 13. It says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, uh, the the King James calls them uh, Jewish vagabonds. Now the word vagabond today has a much different meaning than it does today, and this is why we often argue for the need for a modern literal translation. Um, He's speaking about Jewish exorcists, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Whenever God's people are involved in real ministry, many times the unsaved will get involved in what we would call counterfeit ministries, because that's what Satan is. He's a great counterfeiter. He appears as an angel of light. The Bible warns us. He doesn't come with cloven hoofs and a pitchfork. He comes looking very spiritual and, in this case, very Christian. And so there was some itinerant ministry of sorts with these Jewish men. They're called seven sons of one Sceva. So their dad's name was Sceva, who had seven boys. And interestingly, when you study um, Jewish history, there was the Supreme Court, so to speak, of all of Israel, and that was in Jerusalem, and you called that the Sanhedrin. But they had kind of like little Sanhedrins out in the towns, and this is obviously a long way from Jerusalem Ephesus, but if you had a Jewish community of at least 120 men, 120 families, then they would create their own little Jewish Sanhedrin, and they had a Jewish chief priest of sorts, and this fellow's name was Sceva. And uh, in either case, his seven sons were involved in demon exorcisms. But on this particular day, they are not naming the name of Jehovah or Elohim or Yahweh or one of the Old Testament equivalents. They're using the name of Jesus, a person whom they did not know in a personal life-changing way. And so in verse 15, it says, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? I don't think these seven guys expected the response that they were going to get. Uh, Jesus I recognize, Paul I'm acquainted with, but who the heck are you guys? And uh, listen, they knew Jesus' name. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of James that they tremble at the name of God. 
So there's no atheists in hell. Uh, every, or I say in hell, well, in Tartarus, that's one section where demons are, but all the demons in the world, most of whom are I- either in the abyss or have freedom to wage war, and then that one class of demons that are in Tartarus, they all believe in God, every one of them. And so they're acquainted with Jesus' name, and they seemingly know a lot about Paul because Paul was, again, involved in missionary journeys, and the word was out in the demonic realm that he was a force to be reckoned with. He would go into towns where there was demon worship, and people had opened themselves up to the occult. And when that happens, uh, demon possession begins to spread. And and unbelievers, by the way, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of uh, those who cast out demons in his name and did miracles in his name and, uh, you know, did some spectacular things, even preached in his name. But he will say to them, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but people who were never saved. And so Jesus doesn't deny the uh, possibility of a demon being cast out even by an unbeliever. And you could see why a demon might cooperate with an unbeliever in that realm, because it would give credence. Satan can heal. He can do miracles. And, and of course, the, the Bible tells us, uh, Jesus tells us, especially during the time of the tribulation as he unfolds in the Olivet Discourse, that many false messiahs, false prophets, false uh, preachers will come and perform even great miracles uh, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And so if you see someone healed, you say, well, this must be a man of God. Look, this fellow was in a real wheelchair, and now he's healed. And there'll be like incredible, incredible expressions of false healings during the time of the Great Tribulation. And we immediately assume this person is representing God. No, they're just working with the devil, and he is the great deceiver. And, of course, his chief man during that time, the Antichrist, he'll do all kinds of signs, wonders, and lying miracles, um, but he'll be empowered by the devil. So it says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And so Jesus and Paul's names were known in the demonic realm, uh, and they invoked the name of Jesus by these un, these unbelievers, and I'm sure they didn't expect the response they got. Now, there's another case earlier in Acts, in Acts 16, where Paul was uh, bothered by a slave girl having a spirit of divination. And, of course, when you get into the realm of seances and the whole divination uh, world, you're you're walking into some really troubled territory. And, of course, she was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Again, she's trying to add credence to their preaching ministry to add credence to herself, and that's the way Satan works. She continued doing this for many days. Paul didn't seek this woman out and, oh, yeah, here's an opportunity to cast out a demon. And there are people who, like, they, I don't know, they get a spiritual high of some sorts thinking that, hey, you know, God's given me this deliverance ministry and I need to go seeking out people who are demon-possessed so I can free them of the demonic realm. Paul didn't do that, and he was an apostle. But finally, he was greatly annoyed, the Bible says, and he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. 
and he she left the 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 demon left out of that woman at that moment so again the the critical issue here is that we're we're dealing with an unbeliever so only unbelievers can be possessed but what's interesting back here in acts 19 that follows this became known to all Jews and Gentiles who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified many also of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. So many who had believed, and it's a perfect tense in the Greek New Testament, indicating that they were saved before this day. In fact, uh, as long some of them as two years earlier. And so many in this city that were saved out of the occult, and they had been engaged in occult-like behavior. But some of them held on to their paraphernalia. And this is why I say critical to the whole issue of being freed from... Demon oppression is complete repentance. And so they kept coming, the text says here in Acts 19.18, confessing and disclosing their practices. And by the way, this is an issue someone called last time about lordship salvation. And I said, well, there's an initial decision that takes place at the moment of your conversion, but there's a progressive realm to lordship. And so these people who had been saved for two years— still had some of the paraphernalia that was involved in the demonic realm. So what did they do? Did they have a yard sale and sell it all? No, it says, and many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be, what, 50,000 pieces of silver. I remember years ago, um, I was able to introduce a young Marine captain to the Lord and uh, he uh, came into me as a new Christian, and he was really kind of struggling, and he had this collection of um, rock and roll, heavy metal music. And most of these people who are into that, uh, the people who are the artists who perform it and write it, are in the, the demonic realm as well. That they, they often sometimes worship Satan. I said, well, you need to destroy it. He said, well, it's worth over $5,000. I could sell it. I said, you need to destroy it. That's what they did in Ephesus. They destroyed it. By the way, that Marine captain later went on to the seminary I attended, and he's a pastor today. And many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord kept growing mightily and prevailing. So here's the deal. If you're demon-possessed, and it's possible someone's listening to me, it just means you've never been saved. And the solution is to find Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're demon-oppressed, you're under demonic oppression of some sort. No demon, not even Satan, can prevent you from having victory because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. In 1 John 5, he says in verse 18, he who has been born of God keeps him, and the wicked one does not touch him. He who is born of God keeps him, and the wicked one does not touch him. In other words, when we're born again, when we're born of God, uh, we have a protection against Satan and his demons, a unique protection that does not belong to those who are not born again. And this gives us a sense of confidence, does not touch him. The word touch is an interesting Greek word. It's used in one other place in the New Testament. John uses it in the 20th chapter where um, um, Mary is clinging to the Lord Jesus. And he says, don't touch me. Don't cling to me because I'm not going anywhere. I'm not ascending to my father in the next five minutes. 
And um, the, the point that John clearly makes is that the wicked one, Satan, and by implication any of his demons that serve him, cannot attach themselves to someone who's born of him unless you allow that to be an issue in your life. And so, again, some of these believers who had been born again progressively had a decision to make. And if they wanted to break total freedom from the demonic realm, and they're just like blown away by what had happened and how real this and serious this issue is when they had seen what had happened to the seven sons of Sceva, they got rid of all that stuff. And so to this sister who's writing from, from Bluffton, I would say to you, make sure, make sure, make sure, one, that your son is really genuinely born again. Because there's a lot of people who say they are, but they're not. And they've never really met Christ. And do you see any of the signs of born again, uh, that he has a love for the Word of God, a desire to obey God, a new love for the people of God, and so forth? And if he doesn't, then he needs to take a hard look. If he does, then he just needs to break every single possible realm with his past. Satan is using the heavy metal rock music. He's using pornography. He's using all kinds of things, video games. Most parents have no idea how dangerous video games are. They are letting their children into the realm of the demonic and into the realm of pornography. It used to be the entry level into pornography was comic books. Today it's video games. And there's violent video games and and sensually oriented video games. And Satan is capturing this generation to follow him and potentially the Antichrist. Now, the sister who wrote from Aiken, it's a related question. And let me just say that definitively here, not all mental illness, so to speak, is a result of some demonic activity. How do we know? Because there are some, say, blood disorders that can be treated with medicine, and as soon as they're treated with medicine, the so-called mental illness disappears. So that tells you that Um, if the brain, say, is not functioning properly and drug therapy can correct it, you know, our our brain is a series of electrical and chemical, you know, impulses and and they can be treated sometimes with medicine and, and it's gone, then you know what it's not. But I will say that there are some things that are classified as a mental illness that's not a mental illness at all. It is a spiritual illness. And that spiritual illness needs to be addressed. Either A, the person needs to come to Christ, or B, if they have come to Christ, they need to make sure that they have removed themselves of every possible attachment to the occult in every possible way. Not light repentance, but complete progressive repentance as a born-again child of God. These These are great questions. We could spend a lot more time on them, but... The questions are stacking up, and the phone has been ringing, so let's go to the next caller. All right, very good. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, Pastor Carl, I'm in a dilemma. I have a a sister uh, that we recently attended a, a family funeral in Florida, and they chose to be um, cremated. And my sister had told me that she was going to be um, cremated uh, when she died. She's 65, and she's in great health. And and I told her, I said, you know, I don't believe in cremation in in that. And 
it just really, uh, she said, well, that's just the way I'm going. And if you can show me somewhere in the Bible that it says that you can, there's something against cremation, then I'll listen to you. But she says, I can't find anything. And I can't find anything specifically that says you cannot be cremated. Um, but I, my family heritage, we've always been buried. Um, can you help me get out of this bind or tell me what to say to her or, or where I should go with this? Sure. So I, I've preached messages on this before, but let me give you some of the broad parameters and strokes when we think about cremation. Cremation, in terms of American history, is a relatively new practice. Uh, it began to unfold in 1876, so about 100 years after the founding of our nation in 1776. And it was started by a group of people known as Unitarians. Uh, Unitarians at that point, by the mid to late 1800s, had reached a point uh, in their theology where they denied the deity of Jesus Christ, they denied the doctrine of the Trinity, and so the term unis, so to speak. Um, they uh, denied the absolute authority of the Scripture. They denied the doctrine of the resurrection. These were Unitarians, and these are the people, so consider the source, these are the people who introduce cremation to Americans. And the thought for most Americans, it was just abhorred. Um, they were basically raising their puny little fists in the face of Almighty God and, it, and saying, look, uh, we don't believe in the doctrine of resurrection. Let's see what your God can do with this body that we've burned to ash. Well, obviously, it's not a problem for God. And God can raise a body that has been burned in a fire that was, I did a funeral for a Marine pilot, his jet blew up, and they say his body was basically vaporized and it was gone and they would never find it. Well, God will find that body at the day of the resurrection. So um, they were basically the Unitarians saying, we want you to know we don't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. And that's how they expressed it. Well, what's happening in America? We are progressively getting away from the Bible. Uh, 80% of Americans cannot name more than four of the Ten Commandments. And then even in the realm of evangelicalism, I'm not sure what the word means anymore. I still use it, but it is so watered down. You know, just the last week, Pew Research came out, and they said 52% of evangelicals now have no problem with two people who are not married living together as long as they love each other and it's consensual. Well, obviously, they're not evangelical because evangelicals believe in the authority of God's word. So when we open up God's Word, He gives us a picture of how to deal with our dead. There are some things in the Bible that are um, given by example. For instance, there's not a direct command in the Bible to have, say, deacons, but there's an example of it in Acts 6, and there's some qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3, so it's assumed by what He has recorded that a local church will have deacons. Well, likewise, the same is true concerning burial. How did God's people deal with their dead? Well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Joseph, even Joseph, you know, he said, look, you know, um, how did a Jew bury? They typically put the body in a cave. 
They allowed the flesh after a long period of time to disintegrate, which it did with enough time. And then they would take the bones and they would put them in an ossuary. It's a little box, a bone box. And so Joseph said, look, when, when you guys leave here, and he knew what God had predicted to Abraham, that they were going to be in Egypt a total of 400 years. Take my bones, take my bones, because I want them to be buried in the land of promise, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So being buried was very important. And so in a Jewish um, burial site, you will many times find, you know, a cave that has numerous boxes of bones in it which represent a family, say, of believers. And that's how they could put many family members in the same cave, in the same tomb. Um, when you come into the New Testament, again, it is assumed that God's people are to be buried. John the Baptist, he was buried because that's what you do with the body. That's what the disciples did. When, when John was beheaded, they went and got the body from Herod and they buried him. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they're two disobedient believers. What do they do with the body? They bury him. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great resurrection chapter in the New Testament, there's an assumption that God's people will be buried. Um, Paul likens the burial of a body to uh, a seed being planted in the ground. The seed looks dead, lifeless, but when you put the seed in the ground, you do so with a sense of expectation that life will spring from the seed. And Paul uses that analogy concerning the believer, that, yes, we plant the body in the ground, eventually it will decompose. Um, if it's cremated, it's been put in ashes, but, but God is going to raise that body up. And so you're, you're giving a testimony of faith when you bury the body. And let me just say practically, just very, very practically. Again, there's no illustrations of cremation anywhere in Scripture. There's one that you could maybe get a little bit by stretch, and it concerned Saul and Jonathan, um, who had been basically nailed to a wall in a certain city that I've been to. And uh, in Israel, I bring people there when we go to Israel and uh, their bodies were so decomposed and so rotted, they were virtually impossible to transport. And so they, they burned the flesh off of the body and then took the bones and they were in turn buried. So the only examples of, of, of cremation in the Bible is done by pagans. And the same is true today. You know, you go to places like um, India where Hinduism, say, is prevalent and for centuries, they have practiced cremation. Um, but God's example, and by the way, there is a funeral that God himself presides over. So God made the arrangements, and the person's name who is being buried, of course, was Moses. So the scripture says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. I'm reading the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34. And he, he who, he the Lord, the antecedent is Yahweh, and he the Lord buried him, Moses, in the valley of the land of Moab. So when God does a funeral, and what better example to follow than the living God himself? He buries Moses. 2018 was a critical year in American history because for the first time we had more cremations 
than we had burials. But uh, again, practically, if I'm doing your funeral, and I've done over 500 of them in, since I've been in the ministry, and there's just a little urn in the front with a picture, you've lost a lot of punch and power to your funeral versus when there's a casket. There's something about the casket that shouts death that the little urn filled with ashes does not shout. And that's sad because uh, at your funeral, there are potentially family members and neighbors and friends who will come that maybe you have prayed for for sometimes decades. I've had people at funerals who have come to Christ as Savior and Lord, people who have later told me, you know, my dad... You did his funeral, and I received Christ as my Lord and Savior. He had been praying for me for 25 years, and I think, isn't it interesting that on his funeral, the day of his funeral, God answered his prayer. You lose so much of that power and punch, not to mention you lose the power of the testimony and the respect of the body that God gives because there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul. Look, now, please, don't write me. Don't send me a letter. But in broad terms, what do I do? I I burn my trash and I bury my treasure. I burn my trash and I bury my treasure. Now, I'm not saying that anyone who's done a cremation in burning the body has considered that loved one trash. I'm not saying that. But in broad terms, that's what we do. We burn our trash. We bury our treasure. And those who practice cremation are never, ever consistent. Sadly, I've done a number of funerals for little children. I've never, ever done a funeral for a child when that baby, that three-year-old, that five-year-old was burned into oblivion. It just didn't happen. Why? Because it's like, oh, this precious little three-year-old, you know, we we don't want to cremate her. We, We want to bury her. Well, does the preciousness leave at 50 or 60 or 70? Absolutely not. And so we need to practice not what the culture is doing, but what God gave us by illustration and by mandate. And Paul assumes in 1 Corinthians 15 that you would not do what the pagans did in the land of Canaan, but you would do what God's people have done since the beginning of time where they were always buried because that's the model that God has left for us and that's the model we need to follow. All right, very good. We've got another live caller standing by. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You are on the Bible line. Uh, yes, um, I've got a somewhat of a question, but uh, what I'm wanting to know is if uh, Pastor Brogy, Dr. Brogy there, knows a author by the name of Jeff Kinley, because I heard a pastor, a very small, very small uh, family church, uh, uh, basically, he was preaching on uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, but then he quoted out of that Jeff Kinley book um, about how God called Lazarus and said, Lazarus, I'm going to have to send you back down to earth. And Lazarus replied, God, what did I do wrong? Why why me uh, going back to that sinful earth? And uh, at which time um, God responded to him, well, um, I need you to, to, to go back down there to uh, um, basically give your family more faith and, uh, you know, um, ba- 
basically, in essence, that Lazarus was on the same plane as God, and he's the one that was going to be given the faith and not, not Jesus. Yeah, well, let me let me respond. You know, there are 30,000 books that are printed every year on evangelical presses. So I don't know every author, but I know enough about Jeff Kinley. And he writes on a lot of topics that are what I call um, uh, just hot topics that will sell books. It's kind of like the guy who found supposedly Noah's Ark, who later said he found the anchor of the boat where the Apostle Paul, you know, was shipwrecked. He also says that he found the original uh, place where the uh, second temple was built, that it's not up there in the Temple Mount. And Christians, because they're so naive and so untaught in the Word of God, will just grasp onto these books that sell like hotcakes. And sadly, there are American evangelical presses who really don't care anymore about theology, all they care is to make sure that the pockets of these executives are well-lined and they're making tons and tons of money. And this is why even on a press like Lifeway, they tolerated some people who had less than an orthodox view on some issues, but they were cash cows, and we don't want to get rid of that cash cow because that author is making us tons of money. And look, I'm on a salary of you know a million dollars a year, say. And I don't want to lose that salary. So I would put Kinley in that same realm. Just what you said is enough to make my stomach turn. You know, the fact that, you know, we're we're putting words into the mouth of Lazarus like they're authoritative. I don't care if it's a novel because he writes a lot of novels like zombie killers and things like this. And um, I don't care if it's a novel. Uh, the fact is, is that you don't want to add or subtract to what God's Word reveals, even about a person like Lazarus. And um, so so they're on very dangerous ground when they walk down this road, and they need to be very cautious. So, look, um, read books that will get you into the text of the Bible. You know, when 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 Kenley writes a book uncovering the secrets of Bible prophecy, like like he's got some insight into Bible prophecy that he can unlock for you that no one else has seen. That that's nonsense. That is really sheer nonsense. Uh, that's not to say that you know everything he has written is false, but you know he has a book. I think it's called Interview with the Antichrist. Oh, wonderful! I'm glad you had an interview with the Antichrist. Uh, His Hour Has Come, subtitled. You know, so these are the wacko authors of our day that people are embracing and buying their product. And look, sensationalism sells, but sensationalism isn't always true. So we need to be careful not to go beyond the um, bounds of Scripture. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Joanne from Bluffton would like to know, how did the word Jew come about? It's an interesting word. It's from Yudah in Hebrew. And uh, there is a man by the name of Yudah. Uh, he's one of the 12 sons. And of course, it's the tribe of Yudah, uh, Judah, that um, becomes the tribe that God promises to bring the Messiah from. And so there are 12 tribes and God kept uh, narrowing the scope 
in terms of how we could identify uh, the Messiah. And he gave a number of prophecies, over 300 uh, prophecies, in sp- specifically concerning how we could uh, know uh, who Jesus was, whether or not he was indeed the true Messiah. So it's important. Um, one of those tribes, of course, is the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah is indeed the tribe by which the Messiah came. So it came, it's uh, the etymology of the word comes from the tribe of Judah. Good question. All right, very good. Another listener called in and dictated their question. They heard that in the passage from Revelation 6-2, where the Antichrist is coming on a white horse and he will have a bow, this person heard that the word bow meant fabric cover. And so this person is wondering, is this fabric cover could possibly be a face mask like what we are wearing these days? See, that's the kind of sensationalism I talk about. We could we could write a book on this and people would gobble it up. And um, I think that's a very weak argument. I've heard that before. And they... Um, you know, liken it to a less than hard subject, uh, less than a hard object, and some have even related it to the bow that was put in the sky in the day of Noah. I, I don't think that's what's in view. Look, um, when the seal is broken and another horse, a red horse, went out in him who sat on it, it was granted to him to take peace from the earth. Uh, that's a real event, just like the, the famine that follows is a real event. And when he breaks the first seal and he says, and I saw a white horse, it's a real horse, just like Jesus is coming back on a real horse and uh, described in similar terms in Revelation 19. Um, And, of course, the the text says that um, he came on a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so what might be helpful to you would be to go to searchthescriptures.org, click on um, resources and by scripture and type in Revelation. And I did 60-some sermons on the book of Revelation. And I did a sermon actually on each one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that represent the four judgments. But again, just stop and pause for a second. Look at the big picture. When does the seal, trumpets, and bold judgments begin? Not until the time of the Great Tribulation period. And so there will be a launching point that the prophet Daniel speaks of in Daniel 9, and it will be the rise of the Antichrist. And what's fascinating, if you read Revelation 6, it perfectly parallels with the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, up until the time of the abomination of desolation. So you can look at the birth pangs, so to speak, that Jesus describes. We're not in the birth pangs now. People say, well, you know, there's there's natural disasters going on, or there's famines in the world, or more earthquakes. That may be an indication that it's pregnant, the world. You know, before the, the woman goes into labor, you see signs of a pregnancy, and I think we're seeing signs of a pregnant world, if I can use that metaphor. But the birth pangs don't begin until uh, the coming of the Great Tribulation period that is seven years long. And there's an event right in the middle of the seven years. It's called the Abomination of Desolation, and that's a mark of demarcation. 
And so when you look at the seal judgments, they take place during the first half of the tribulation. And they, by the way, are described as the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is like a rheostat in Scripture. It's increased uh, with time, and uh, it gets worse and worse and worse. But then when the event takes place right in the middle of the seven years that Daniel the prophet uh, highlights as well as the Lord Jesus He speaks of the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, where that false Messiah will go into the temple, make himself out to be God, and it will be accompanied with an idolatrous act. That will be the signal to the Jew that this cannot possibly be the Messiah because he is asking uh, in performing idolatry, which is against the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So what I'm saying is, is that when people take the events of today, oh, yeah, look at these face masks, you know, the word bow can mean a piece of cloth, and he's talking about, we're not in the tribulation period. In fact, I don't believe it happens until after the church is removed, but it hasn't happened yet. We're not in the tribulation period, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are not on the scene, and uh, this happens all during this seven-year period that the Scripture foretells, and we're not in that time frame yet. So any of the nonsense that people are coming up with uh, on these prophetic websites on YouTube and all over the internet, that's all it is. It's it's prophetic nonsense. All right. Very good. Well, since you brought that up about the uh, tribulation and the rapture, and uh, let me read this question from Heidi from Washugal, Washington. Hi, Dr. Brogy. My question is in regards to the rapture and its timing. I know you're of the belief that the church will be taken before the tribulation starts. I've listened to your teachings from Daniel and Revelation as well as other Bible teachers on this subject to try and obtain as much knowledge and understanding on the topic as possible. I very much want to believe that the church will be taken before the tribulation starts, but there are two things that keep me from fully embracing the pre-trib rapture. First, 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness lawlessness is revealed. That's from the English Standard Version. The simple reading of this verse seems to indicate an order in which events must take place before we're gathered to Christ, spoken of in verse 2-1. How is this verse not taken as a list of events that must take place before we're raptured? I'm searching the scriptures to show myself approved, but this is where it's led me so far. Thank you for all that you do. Well, you're conflating two verses together. So Paul begins, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, our gathering together to him. That's the rapture. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back for you and receive you to myself, that where I am, you can be also. And the Lord Jesus is in heaven, and someday he's coming back for his bride. It's a distinct event from the second coming. The word rapture is, people say, well, it's not in the Bible. Yes, it is. It's the Greek word harpazo, and it means to be caught up. And, of course, in the Latin translation, which was used for a thousand years of church history, it gave us the word rapture. So I don't care what you call it, the catching up of the church or the rapture, but the catching up of the church is in the air. The second coming is to the earth. So we don't want you to be shaken from your composer or disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if from us to the fact that the day of the Lord had come. 
some of them thought they had potentially misunderstood Paul in the rapture and that they were in the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. It's a prolonged period of time that mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts at sunset and it goes till sunset the next day. And so every Jew starts Sabbath right now around 7 p.m. this Friday in, in Israel. Uh, they'll start at, at dusk and it will go until 7 p.m., the next day. So we don't want you to be shaken or disturbed. And some of them had been disturbed as if Paul maybe had sent a letter. And that's why Paul in Second Thessalonians will say, look, I'm writing this greeting in my own hand. It's a distinguishing mark in every letter that I wrote. So in the next chapter, he affirms, look, the letter that you supposedly thought was from me, it didn't have this distinguishing mark. And I do this in every single letter. Now follow. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for it, it what? It, meaning the our gathering together with him, not the day of the Lord, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, number one, and the man of destruction is revealed. That's number two. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's number three. So let no one deceive you, it will not come. Now, if you're using the New American Standard, you will notice that the words, it will not come, are italicized in the NASB. What does that tell you? Unlike in modern English, where we italicize words for emphasis, beginning with the Bishop's Bible, we started to italicize words to reflect those words that are not included in the original text, but were added by the antecedent. And so... um, I think it's helpful here because while these words are implied, it's the fact that they wrote them forces us to ask a question. It goes back to the antecedent to the day of the Lord. So please understand, I'm, he's not referring to the rapture because that cannot ha- have happened unless the apostasy comes first. And the day of the Lord can't begin until the apostasy and the man of the lawlessness is revealed. So the the day of the Lord, again, it mimics a biblical day. It gets dark, it gets bright, it gets dark. And so we may be in the shadows of the day of the Lord, but it will get very dark after the rapture of the church. The Antichrist will come on the scene. It will get pitch black by the end of the tribulation. Messiah will return. He's likened to the S-U-N, Malachi, He'll shine and rule with a rod of iron for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, those people who are born to tribulation saints who enter into the millennium in their natural bodies will rebel against Christ. Now, again, even if you literally interpret that text of Scripture, um, that there will be a rebellion where Satan has been bound for a thousand years, who's going to rebel against Jesus who's reigning on the earth? I mean, if you are raptured, and you make the second coming in the rapture one event where you go up, you're caught up, and you come right back to the earth, then you're in a resurrected body, and in a resurrected body you cannot sin. And so there's no one to rebel. That's why most amillennialists, they just write it all off, and they just say, well, the next event is the second coming, and I'm glad they affirm that because that is going to happen someday. Um, and they just spiritualize prophecy. They apply a totally different hermeneutic to the rest of Scripture, because, again, if you just take it at plain value, you have to have people who are rebelling. But if the rapture takes place first and we're caught up, seven years unfold, 
where an untold number of people are saved, many who are butchered with their heads cut off during the seven-year tribulation period, but some who are alive who enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies and are able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, not all of their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, even with the devil bound for a thousand years, will receive Jesus as Lord. And so at the end of the thousand years, when the devil is loosed, he will tempt the nations, people who were not born again, who did not receive Jesus. And this time will be really an example of how depraved man is. And even with Christ ruling on the earth, not everyone will receive him as Lord. So again, he he's making here the antecedent it going back to the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, you're not in the day of the Lord. How do you know you're not in the day of the Lord? Because the apostasy, he's not just saying apostasy, but the apostasy. There's always been apostasy falling away. Jesus speaks of that even in the parable of the sower. But this is articular. He's talking about the apostasy of apostasies. And again, I think the seeds are being sold, sown. We're seeing these evangelical leaders who call themselves evangelical, and now they're coming out as homosexual, and uh, they're coming out denying the absolute authority of the Bible, or um, their lifestyles are being discovered. This is apostasy, but it's not the apostasy. But because there is so much ignorance in the church today, and so many people who think they're born again, but who are not, uh, when the church, the true church is removed, you will see these people fall away in droves, give allegiance to the Antichrist, many whom will be executed. So you're not in the day of the Lord that begins with uh, the apostasy and the Antichrist on the earth who will really among other things that he does, he will foster apostasy, first with a one-world religion that will be a multiplicity of world religions brought together under one umbrella, and then when he commits the abomination of desolation, he won't be satisfied with a single world religion. He will only want um, religion of him where he is worshipped. And again, people will have to say, do I want to follow Jesus or do I want to follow Antichrist? If I follow Jesus, I'll lose my head. If I follow Antichrist, I'll stay alive. But Jesus said, don't fear the guy who at the most can do is destroy your body. The one we ought to fear is God Almighty, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So what good is seven years of food and some level of comfort, though it's a miserable time, the worst time in human history, versus an eternity in hell. There's no comparison. All right, I think we've time for one more question. A listener has a friend who is an unbeliever, but whose mother passed away. This listener's friend says she still gets words from her mom that she's still watching her. This woman's friend also goes to a psychic who gives her accurate messages from her mother. And finally, sometimes when this person is getting a word from her mother, the lights will flicker. This listener knows this is all wrong and demonic, but wonders how she should respond to her friend. Well, what it comes down to, as it always does, is an issue of authority. Is the Bible the authoritative word of God? So that's the question your friend has to ask and answer for herself. If the Bible is indeed the authoritative word of God, then what she is doing is evil beyond evil. And God speaks against, you know, communicating with the dead. He speaks against psychics. He speaks against uh, these individuals who would lure you uh, into the demonic realm. 
But again, remember, everything you believe, everything I believe is based on something. It's either something I've read in a book or a friend told me or I made up. But just believing something doesn't make it true. You can believe 2 plus 2 equals 5. doesn't matter how sincerely you believe it. But 2 plus 2 does not equal 5. It equals 4. And remember, every belief you have is based on something. And if the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and that's what you want to help your friend to do, and maybe if it's useful to you, I wrote a little booklet. It's actually an article that appeared in, uh, I've written several articles for Ken Ham and some apologetics books that he has done, and one of the volumes dealt with the authority of the Bible. So I wrote an article in there, How to Prove the Bible is True. And it's also available on Amazon, just that one chapter. Um, but if you want to, I'll be happy to send you a free copy. And I don't make any money on this sales on Amazon. We sell them at cost. So the only one who makes money is Amazon. Uh, we don't mark them up for the author to make any profit. And so what I'm trying to say is it would be maybe useful to you to give her that booklet, and then you have a place in which to start because then you can take any thought or any belief you have, put it into the mirror of the Bible, and you could take her to passages that speak against necromancy and other practices. And and if the Bible's true, then what she's doing in evil is evil. And again, the devil's a great deceiver. And uh, he can manipulate facts. He can create lies. He's the father of lies. How is it supposedly, and I don't necessarily deny it as having happened, that a demon, say, uh, a psychic can solve some murder cases? Well, they can do it for a simple reason. Some murders, not all murders, there's a lot of sin that takes place where a demon or the devil has nothing to do with anything. You know, so Flip Wilson's theology, the devil made me do it, isn't always true. But the thief came to kill and destroy and to steal. And so some murders are demonically inspired. And if there's a demon who's involved in a murder, then you could bring in a psychic who is communicating with the demonic world. And it might be revealed to that psychic who actually, what demon and who did it through what person. And again, what does it do? It gives credence to error. So you've got to determine theology not by experience. Experience must always be subservient to the authority of the Bible. You have to determine what you believe based on the canon of Scripture. And this is why these new revelations and you know, messages that so-called evangelicals are getting from God is so dangerous, and it's setting the church up for the apostasy that's coming. Well, we're out of time. I wish I could spend a little more time on that, but I hope that will get you started. Thank you so much for being with us today for the Bible Line, and Lord willing, we'll be back next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.